We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm Pete, joined by Darius and Mike, and we're doing a mailbag episode today. It's been way too long. I actually think we might do consecutive ones. We got a ton of great questions uh, today, and we're not going to be able to get to all of them, which is why I think we should do more than one. And it, it reveals, I think, a certain level of anxiety amongst the Lakers fan base. This is a very strange season to be going in to. I, I can't remember another season that quite feels this way at this point. And so without further ado, let's let's talk about some of that. Uh, first question comes from Daniel Ravid. Uh, this regime, <laughs> this regime, this regime sees transition as a core part of their team's identity, and it seemed to guide decisions pre and post AD. Given that transition makes up a small percentage of offense, do you think the Lakers have been right to emphasize this aspect in personnel at times over skill and shooting? What do you think, Pete? <laughs> so transition was a big part of the championship team that we won. I, I think I, I sort of think of offense, especially come playoff time, as what are your foundational things and where can you get easy points? Easy points are really difficult to come by in the playoffs. And so getting out in transition and getting those easy buckets, plus having two elite shot makers, you're not all of the way there offensively, but those two things alone really like you you get a lot of the way there uh, offensively in the playoffs if you have those two things. But the big missing piece to me, D, is the defense, right? Like yeah. it, the defense needs to be what triggers that. And I think that it's more the absence of that than the presence of emphasis on transition to me. So I agree with that. And I think that both Frank Vogel and Darvin Ham have emphasized defense in the appropriate way and emphasized it within the context of how it relates to transition offense. And so where I think the tricky part is in team building is getting the requisite level of defenders in order to be able to translate to transition play. And that's where the team was not as good last season. Um, and I think it's where they were hit and miss with the team that they built after the championship. I think in swapping their bigs out for like Harrell, for example, 
and using their MLE on a player like that who is not necessarily a defensive player but can thrive in transition offensively, I I think that there's a bit of folly there. And that's why I'm a bit more optimistic about this year's team being able to be better in transition because I think they're going to be better defensively. Well, to start, a well-written question, which I always enjoy. I think that transition is a is a term that can be overrated. And it's a little bit like pace where if you just you'll see some teams sometimes start or some reporters and they'll they'll cite like, well, this team was first in pace. And we think, oh, well, that's great. Well, not necessarily. It may just be a team that doesn't play defense that wants to run the whole game. Um, it, the One of the teams that I think of in recent history was like when Westbrook was with Washington and that team was scoring a ton and getting up and down a ton. But they, they couldn't win games when it counted because they couldn't get stops. And it was just part of their whole thing um, or or even certain. Well, I'll, I'll spare going back 10 years. I was thinking of another team. But I also think that LeBron is such a key to any discussion with transition, because if you have a player that's that great that or Giannis, like if you don't build the wall and we talked about this in the context of the four out uh, one in type offense, if you don't build a wall and you've got a player of that caliber, it, it, that player is going to be able to just carve up a, a defense all, all on his own. And it requires a lot of planning for the opposing coach where they might say, Pete, all right, forget the offensive rebounding. We just can't even afford to do that because if you show LeBron yep. even a tiny bit of a, a lane, then he will just like the angles that he can take yep. because of his size and his speed, right? Uh, essentially can just finish a game on its own. So you see less of it in the playoffs when everybody's locked in, but that, that can definitely overwhelm regular season games. And AD compounds the same point, right? That whole, we're going to abandon offensive rebounding. One of the big reasons that you do that is because the rim runner is kicking your ass in transition. And a lot of times that's going to be AD with a lot of the ways, especially as he gets older, that LeBron dominates in transition is with his passing. And so it's kind of counterintuitive a, a lot of times in that you think like, oh, it's, he's going into year 20. You don't want him to run a lot. But in some ways, those are some of the easiest possessions often for him because he's throwing a 40-foot outlet pass and now it's a two-on-one or a three-on-two and Anthony Davis is kind of on the other end of that. So in a lot of ways, it's a quarterback-receiver type of relationship in transition where you got a you know Matthew Stafford and Calvin Johnson type of thing, D, right? Where I think emphasizing transition is good because it builds around our best players, but it's just the absence of defense. Yeah, I also think, too, that transition, we often think about transition like we think about the Showtime Lakers or something where it's like, ooh, like hit ahead, guy streaking up the lane, fast break dunk. But transition also leads to early offense, which I think is early offense can still be a half court set, but you're getting into it much earlier. And, and so there's a lot of principles and philosophy based stuff around transition being on the front of your mind offensively because it leads to better habits in the half court that can cover up some of your weaknesses there as well. This is where I thought the championship team from 2020 was very good because they had a baseline level of offensive execution in the half court. But a lot of that was also based on the ability of they're getting up court quickly. And so they would throw a lot of hit aheads to Anthony Davis, but AD wasn't running to the front of the rim for the post. He was running into a post up that then is collapsing the defense in in a way where suddenly a kick out or a swing swing leads to an open corner three from Danny Green or from KCP. And that ultimately looks like a half court possession and is not a transition basket, but it's built off of the principles that you're trying to establish by playing faster and leveraging your transition ability as a team. So I think, though, 
that bridge also needs to be built with like, do we have the requisite half court players as well? Because a Danny Green, a KCP, yep. an Alex Caruso, a Markeith Morris, like these guys also have half court ability, Kyle Kuzma, that can then prop you up and give you a baseline level of success on when the game does slow down, which then also helps you balance out your total offensive approach. And I think that ties right into our next question here, which comes from Easy Love 84 How do we overcome the glaring lack of spacing on the offensive end of the court? As is, we're a bottom-tier shooting team from the outside, and our guards perimeter players are below average defenders mostly. What can Ham do to over- overcome these roster construction deficiencies? I mean, there's a lot of ways to manipulate spacing, Mike. Like, a lot of it is going to be on player positioning, like... We talked about this a, a fair amount in the second half of the season on on last year's pod, but I thought Frank Vogel made a couple of good adjustments by removing his second big from the dunker spot and placing him at the opposite elbow instead, which that generated a certain amount of, of spacing for his post player, typically LeBron or, or AD, for them to be able to operate and create a different sort of passing angles. And so there are ways to manipulate the floor, even with non-shooters. But the easiest way to me, Mike, is like it's, it's a make-or-miss league. Some guys are going to get open shots. And they're going to be open for a reason. And you have to hit a requisite number of those open shots. And if the Lakers are going to be a low 30s three-point shooting team on open to wide open threes, then they're not going to make the defense pay enough. And and so uh, there's you're only going to generate so much spacing in general when your team is built around LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Right. Like those they threaten the paint so much that teams are going to sell out to stop them and to slow down their paint presence. And the way you open that up is by, hey, like this team is shooting 40% on threes and they're getting good quality threes. We have to start rotating to them. And you have to put this, you have to plant that seed in the defense's head that our plan actually is not working and it's not working. And so now you close out a little bit further and a little bit harder. And then that creates driving lanes and then it starts to snowball and the offense can and be more effective. So part of it is just like hit the shots that you're given, right? And we'll see if this Lakers team can actually do that. So from my perspective, first off, it's going to be a weakness of the team. There's only so much a coach can do. But I've been emphasizing how this style of offense, or at least what I think we're going to do, is uh, the friendliest to dribble penetrators. And one of the things, whether it's Pat Bev and Nunn in the starting backcourt, if Russ is involved, Lonnie Walker, all of our guards, even Austin to to a great extent, they are, you've got a point guard or a point guard type of player in the corner. That's one of the things with uh, Pat Bev and Kendrick Nunn. I think they're going to start a lot of their uh, half court possessions, Russ, Russ even too, in the corners. And so the what the Lakers will have to be able to do to mitigate that lack of shooting personnel is be very patient in their drive and kicks. It's like drive, kick, drive, kick, and you're and that's the the advantage they have is that whomever they're kicking to, Patrick Beverly's run a ton of pick and rolls in his career. Kendrick Nunn, same thing. It's not usually those corner spots in this type of offense is a shooter where if the defender closes out to that shooter quickly, they're not really the type of 
guy normally that like are you how many ball screens did you see Milwaukee run with Pat Connaughton or Grayson Allen guys like that Allen got a few more but those aren't really what those guys do necessarily and so the the lack of shooting in some ways is made up for in an increase in ball handling and so but eventually you got to make the shot right you can drive and kick and drive and kick all you like eventually you got to be able to make that shot and so the the end of that is if you do this well, that drive and kick and drive and kick, you're kicking out to average shooters with their feet set and they're open, right? And so that it's more about improving the average quality of three-point attempt for average to below average shooters. So they're not taking really difficult shots, Mike, where a guy's flying at them and they're op- they got their feet set. Most NBA players, including the ones that we have, will hit that shot on a fairly regular basis. That to me is the best route that we can take, but it's still going to be a weakness. So offense is just not only about shooting percentage uh, and certainly about three point shooting percentage. But the main thing you want to think about is what, like, how do you create easy shots that are sustainable to make and how do you get them often? Mm. And how do you Mm -hmm. do that in a playoff series? And so when you have LeBron and AD on your team, you're going to be a certain type of team and they're going to be able to, to advantage create enough to the point where you just need some, this is my whole like 33 to 39% thing. You just need some guys that can occasionally knock down shots. You don't have to have all snipers out there because if you do, most likely those guys won't be able to defend at a high enough level to stay in the floor anyway. So to just, to put a little, a couple of numbers behind this in the 1920 season, regular season, the Lakers were 22nd in three point percentage at like around, let's see, 34.5% and attempts. I think they were ninth, 17th. And then in the playoffs, same story. They were 12th out of 16 teams in percentage. And in terms of attempts, they were 11th. The Bucs, when they won the title last year, uh, they were in the playoffs. They were 14th in percentage uh, and 9th in makes. Now, this year's Warriors, I feel like, are always going to be a little different with, you know, the greatest shooting player of all time. Um, And to the point where I didn't even look that up, I'm I'm sure they're towards the top. But, yeah. Where was Boston? I'm wondering where uh, Boston was for this, this year. Past, yeah, or sorry, this this past season because they made the finals. So, so Boston in the postseason was fifth in percentage, it, okay. and they shot the ball really well in, in the in the post uh, postseason. Remember that in fourth in attempts, and then in the regular season they were. I don't think they shot as well in the regular season. Yeah, they were 14th in percentage and ninth in ninth in attempts. Boston was actually third in attempts and. Uh, oh, sorry. Third in attempts in the regular season and percentage Golden State was eighth. Yeah. So Boston's a good example of uh, a team that doesn't have like necessarily shooters, but they create really good shots, really clean in rhythm looks for those guys. And so that they to me are an example of like what you can be as a drive and kick team, even if you don't have like snipers necessarily. But s- speaking of snipers, while we're on the topic, uh, Paris Jante, he's going to get back to back questions here. Two really good questions. Thank you for these, Paris. First one is what level of defense does Cole Swider need to get to in order to be a realistic three and D rotational fit? He may not be a stopper, but if he stays hot as a shooter and can learn team defense, what's his trajectory? Is his best case scenario impactful this year? He's a guy, guys, where in this whole context, he is that shooting forward, 
right? And obviously a rookie, undrafted rookie. But in the context of our needs, he's an interesting player. We got 13 roster spots filled. Who knows what happens with Russ? And maybe we just keep those open to see if we can absorb players. But there's a decent case to promote Swider to the full squad for that 14th spot to just have that kind of guy on the roster. Maybe give Jay Huff the second two-way contract. Uh, that's that's where I'm at right now, D. I know this is something that's been on your mind, too. Talk to me about Swider, specifically defensively, because on the offensive end, he certainly has what we need. Well, I think that that's the context in which you need to view his defense, too, right? And so, like, how, what's the level of defense that is acceptable, I think is another way to phrase this question from Cole Swider if he's going to continue to hit shots, right? Now, Mike, we all know head coaches have a certain threshold for what's going to allow you to play in the first place. And I thought Vogel had to lower his threshold significantly with the roster that he he had last season in (laughs) terms of the avenues that allowed players onto the floor. Mm -hmm. And I'm very interested to see where Darvin Ham's threshold is and what he values from from players. And getting back to, to Swider, I think he needs to play to a level of defense that is Duncan Robinson-ish, right? Which I think means he needs to try. He needs to try hard. He needs to act like he's working. And he needs to basically be in the right spot 90 to 95% of the time, which is a high which is a big ask for a rookie player, right? Now, he's smart. He's an experienced college player. And he's played in a couple of different systems in college as well because he was a transfer guy. And so he played He played in primarily zone defenses at Syracuse. But before that, he would have played less zone, right? And so I'm interested to see if he can be in the right spots a lot. I was encouraged by his aptitude defensively in summer league, even though his results were hit and miss because he is not a high level athlete. And and so my concern with Swider defensively more is like he's going to have a giant flag planted on him if he actually makes it into the rotation in in a significant way, because teams are just going to target him mercilessly. And even if he's not a bad defender, when you get targeted so much you're going to give up plays i i think the same thing happened to um to austin last year where austin held up plenty well in a lot of circumstances but it's like if every single play you're considered the weak point well then guess what you're it's like it's like a left tackle you might be the best left tackle but it's just like if if you're getting two or three guys sent at you every single possession. This is like, you're going to give up sacks. And, and that's kind of where Austin was. And that's how I kind of view Swider as well. So it's like, you're going to get targeted, bro. Can you hold up? It's also a question of, so this is where the percentages matter some, because if you're only doing one thing and you're out there and you're supposed to be the shooter, then there's this pressure to make every shot that you get, mm-hmm. especially the ones that are open. And then that just becomes, I think, difficult when you're not when you're not the type of player that's going to be promised a certain amount of minutes so that you can find a little bit of a rhythm and you know that you're going to get some shots up. Now, with that said, Swider immediately hit shots in summer league in both summer leagues. And that doesn't always happen. So he he knew that he was out there just to hit shots and his shot seemed impervious to the pressure of that. So that gives you a little bit of encouragement as you go into the season, because Pete, if he hits the, if he shoots the way that he shot in summer league, 
even if his defense is bad, the math still works out enough to give him a few minutes, you know, a quarter or whatever that ends up being. So it's it's a funny thing how it's it's a bit of a chicken egg thing. And but I don't expect that he's going to have that his defense is going to be the thing that's going to that is going to hinge upon. You know, it's it's almost going to be a, a bit more unfair and it's going to be can you hit enough shots to make up for the fact that just physically, you know, sure, you can hang a little bit, but teams are still going to target that. And it's still not going to be like the drop off between that and say when Gabriel or Toscano Anderson, you know, may still be a big enough difference that they're going to attack it regardless of if he's hitting shots. So I guess you better hit the shots. Yeah, that's exactly what it is, is like, how well are you doing that? And that remains to be seen. There have been a few guys, Sfi is the most recent guy, where it was he was that quadruple A type of shooter, where he would dominate a G League game, had that 47-point game, he was great in Summer League, but when the game speeds up a little bit, when the athletes get a little better, that's the thing that still remains to be seen, is can Swider hit shots at that level? That said, he is a shooter shooter. Like, he's a guy you have to close out all the way to him. And if not, he's like, if you, if you do a half closeout or if you like sort, if you don't fully commit to it, he's going to take it and he's going to knock it down. And he's six foot nine. And so he's a big dude. Like that type of shooter is really valuable. And so defensively, if he's capable of doing that, I think there's an argument to play him for sure. Um, And so then it becomes a question of what what can you do defensively in summer league? The kind of guys that he had trouble with. I remember there was a Clipper game where on a few possessions in a row, two, three possessions in a row, BJ Boston and Jay Scrub, two of the better athletes on that Clippers team, just ate him up in transition. And it's a speed and athleticism thing. He couldn't turn his hips fast enough, couldn't slide his feet, couldn't contest high enough on a on a jump. And so like. But that's the domain of better athletes is they're going to attack you in space. I think the thing that Darvin's probably going to ask of him is like, yo, man, like, for example, I've heard Swider was a football player when he was younger. So like, yo, go crack down on a bike. Can you be physical? At least there's nothing he can do. He could be the most good faith. Try the uh, hardest he can be. And you can only slide your feet so fast. But can you put a body on a guy? Can you be a six, nine dude? That to me is his entry point defensively. Yeah, that's where being 6'9 helps. It's why yeah. it's just like there were th- – this reminds me of like the argument between like Trey Young and Luka Doncic, right, M- Mike? Right. And, and people were just like, well, you know, Luka, Luka doesn't play much more defense than Trey. And like that wasn't wrong before this past season. I thought Luka made great strides defensively this past season for Dallas. But Luka wasn't – some try hard defensively and he's still necessarily not all all of the time but he's six seven six eight and trey young is six two six three and that difference in size is just going to matter and it's the difference the same thing that you were saying about Sfi, pete it's just like when you're a six five six six dude it's just like okay well these long athletes bother you more and when you're mm-hmm. a 6'9", dude, you just get that shot up and you shoot over the top. Well, the same thing matters defensively. In rebounding too, Darius. If you can just grab a couple boards, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Like, put a body he, on someone. Box somebody out. Like, walk them under the basket. Yeah. He's just a better-sized basketball player. And and that'll matter. There's a lot of dudes in front of him, though, like on the depth chart. I would love to see if Swider could crack the rotation, but there's a certain part of me, too, that hopes that that's like not actually the case because it tells you things have gone in a direction where it's just like, oh, damn it. The undrafted free agent 
power forward sniper guy is now someone who we're sort of looking to as a solution for something. And so it's like the chicken and the egg with that. Like, I'd love to see him thrive. I'd also love to for the Lakers to not have to like go in that direction because other things are working better. For sure. And that's my hope as well. I could also see us needing like one guy, just like one guy that you have to get out to on the three-point line that has some of that gravity that isn't necessarily an indictment on any of the other individual players, but collectively, we just don't have a ton of shooting. So let's take a break, come back. Uh, Paris has another question for us uh, regarding spacing. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So a second question, this is a different form of spacing, is it It seems like our vertical threat has significantly improved. With a healthy AD and LeBron, is there a tangible lift or improvement in how the team can optimize lineups with Westbrook, i.e., does an improved vertical threat make it any more difficult for teams to pack the paint? It does. I mean, like the basic, and, and Pete, you, you could break down the X's and O's um, well on this, but a viable role man who... A, gets into his role quickly, and B, then is a real threat to play at the top of the square, that player requires a different commitment from the defense than a player who cannot get into his role quickly and cannot play above the square. Mm-hmm. And how you tag, how you deal with that, and how you're able to play defensively against that sort of player it matters in then the amount of resources you can deploy against the ball handler. And it really is a symbiotic relationship between the two. And Russ really never found chemistry with any of his role guys last season. And part of that was definitely Russ's fault. He never found the timing with those guys. And also his own limitations made it so that defenses were always playing him a certain way and Mm -hmm. not having that variety hurt him. Right. But 
Having it, having a big athlete like Jones or a healthy AD can help him to the level it can lift it all up. I'm not exactly sure, but it should be better than it was last season. Wow, two different kind of spacing questions. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, I the spacing thing. I'm trying to. I'm trying to get to a point where I'm not just repeating the same thing about spacing being overrated because I, I. I just think that we talk about it more. Then it, I, I it, think so too. Yeah, but so, vertical so spacing is a little different, though, Mike. Like, we, well, you got those lob threats, like a Jones. Like, well, that's, it's that's, a different way of getting there. So that's what I want to get to. So that was this is like a a straight Frank Vogel talking point of about vertical spacing. And so he said vertical spacing. He may have invented the term vertical spacing for all I know, because he's the first person that I ever heard say it. Um, and maybe he was he just likes the word vertical because, of course, verticality right was a big part of him with Roy Hibbert. And so, yeah, so the vertical spacing thing I do think is legitimate. And you also get that just when, like with Anthony Davis, whether he's playing the four or the five, like in a screen role setting, you can get a certain amount of vertical spacing threat for a lob on that's why screen roll can be impactful because the defender can't really do that much about it as long as you have a guy that can go up and get it enough. So I do believe in vertical spacing. Uh, and and I think that it it's important to have the like Dwight Howard last year did not have vertical spacing, even though it looked like he might because he's Dwight mm-hmm. Howard. And you once in a while would see him still get up for a dunk, but like, he was struggling to just to get putbacks at certain points later in the season, you know? So when that goes away, <laughs> yeah. it definitely impacts the team. And so they have, they have some of that now, um, not only with Jones, but just when you ever, whenever you play AD there, that exists as well. Remember last year, our first game after the all-star break was against the Clippers and Dwight started that game. And in the first quarter, he had like, 10 points and six boards and just dominated the Clippers and was just kicking Zoo's ass. And I was thinking like, if only we had nine games off, nine days off between games, Dwight Howard would be able to probably do this on a, on a more that regular basis. That was a popular basis. group says, group thread thing where, and I think that nine is generous. I think I was even just suggesting five, like basically shut him down for two games. And just, if he has yeah. five days, then he can get his legs to a point where he can jump enough, you know? And and really, like I really think that would have been more productive. Um, it just it's hard. It to, probably would have. It's been. hard to make that plan, you know, officially. <laughs> you're, with what you're acknowledging there to a player. I, I'm so glad we don't have to talk about that team anymore. We will from time to time. But last year's team, Sean Davis, one of our listeners, asked a question of like, "What was your least favorite Lakers team?" Because I can't remember one worse than last year. Last year was definitely my least favorite Lakers team uh, of of my lifetime, uh, and so. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I totally, I totally get that. And I'm so glad we don't have to have these discussions anymore with respect to vertical spacing. Um, that's one of the ways that you can get those standstill threes for your average shooters, your Patrick Beverly's, your Kendrick Nunn's, the wide open type of looks is a guy like Damian Jones. He's really the vertical spacing guy that we've, that we've added to the mix. And Jones, when you've got that kind of guy, that can get to the top of the backboard square like D talks about, that means you have to tag them all the way. What that means is that low man rotation from the weak side that we always talk about. The term is tagging because one of the ways you do it is you kind of run over and you just kind of check them with your forearm with a little chicken wing. And then you go back to your guy because you don't want to, as that help guy, like be on the lob guy for too long. Well, if you just kind of give a courtesy tag to Damian Jones, he's going to freaking dunk on you because and then it's LeBron. And this is one of the ways to play on the great shot creators and the ball handling that we have on this team is 
we have several guards that are used to making that skip pass. And so that's the, it, you have to commit all the way to the roll man. And we think, you know, the paint's going to be packed. You got to throw a, a high velocity skip pass in the shot pocket to that open shooter. And LeBron and, and Russ in particular, those are two of the best of all time at making that particular pass. It getting the ball to an open shooter in their shot pocket with a clean look at a high velocity. And so having that, that dunker, to be able to do that helps facilitate that from a, a spacing standpoint. All right. <laughs> Let's have a, a fun one from our guy, uh, our guy, Joey. What is the biggest what if in Lakers history? And also, who does a better job in a job swap scenario? Mike cutting video content versus Pete's sideline reporting. Mike, let's start with you here. <laughs> Isn't the Joey? The Joey. Jo- oh, yes, jo- our wow. Joey. Joey Ramirez. Stud. Yeah. Great yeah. looking guy, oh, yeah. too. Oh, uh, man. I I think that you absolutely would be a great sideline reporter. Um, you just – or really anything with basketball. You, ju- you would just need – the time to get comfortable with it. Like when the, all of the technical stuff takes a little bit to get to, but eventually you would get to the place where you could just share your basketball knowledge and be great at it. So uh, in terms of me and video editing, I mean, I think that I could certainly get to a point of competence, but it would not be a passion in the way that you could get with, with sideline reporting. You could get to a point of passion um, where it would be great and fans would appreciate it. So the answer is you. And I very rarely would pick anybody to beat me in anything um, that I, that, you know, that I would kind of put my, that. <laughs> that I could put my mind true. to thinking like, no, nah, I can figure that out. I can really figure that out. But I, I am going to demure in this case. Mike, can you tell, can you tell the listeners the story you told us before we logged on here about your running exploits <laughs> in, in high school? I, I just don't, I don't know how to tell it without sounding, uh, like I was like bragging, like it was some major thing. So no, I, I will well, not. I, I'm the one that, okay, well, I'll tell it then. So Mike, we are talking about, uh, about missing Great. coaching, right? <laughs> Is that okay? If you don't want it, if you don't want it. It's fine. fine. Okay, cool. Um, so we were talking about, uh, about coaching. I forget how we got onto the subject. And I was talking about how one of the things I missed is when I was a coach, if we were doing something that was really heavy into running, the, you know, we'd have all the guys along the baseline. Everyone's a little bit gassed and sweating and whatnot. And you pick somebody along the baseline to shoot free throws, right? You come out. And so that person is shooting free throws like a technical free throw. No one else is on the court. All their teammates are along the sideline, myself included. And the the rules were if you missed both, y'all had to run a monster. We used to call them suicides. We don't talk like that anymore, right? But this is a a running drill where you run from the baseline to the free throw line, back to the baseline. Then the baseline to half court, back to the baseline. Opposite free throw, back to the baseline. Opposite baseline, back to the baseline. People don't like running those, right? So it's a a punishment of sorts. So if you miss both free throws, you got to run one of those. If you split the free throws, whole team, just a sprint up and back, no big deal. But if you make both free throws after the big running drill the coaches had to run and they freaking loved that and so i was telling that story and just kind of reminiscing on on coaching and mike was like you know i played basketball for three years i never lost one of those i'm like what do you mean is it the 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 monsters the the up and backs i never freaking lost i mean this is you know you don't talk like that. I talk like that. Yeah, I never lost on. in Hold three on. years <laughs> of play. This is why you don't let me tell the story. This is why you got to tell the story. No, it's it, it's true. It's true. But just the way that you say it was is if I was like actually flexing my muscles into the Zoom screen, you know, to you, the, that was the inflection you were starting to go there with. 
Um, I don't it's know, the maybe accomplishment that, that's the flex, Mike. It's, it's well, doing it that's the flex. It was, yeah. Look, I wasn't the best basketball player on the team, but I was fast and I did uh and I and I did have good endurance. And so that was that was one thing that I could control. And it just became a fun sort of point of like, all right, you know, let's here we go. That's all. It's fun. Darius, why don't you answer the other part of the question though? The, oh, the what, what if, is, like, what history. if. Yeah. Oh, the what if, man. There are so many what ifs. Like my brain immediately goes to like the vetoed Chris Paul trade. Um, the All those longstanding rumors of a potential like KG and Kobe partnership as with Bynum being the bait to get him. Um, obviously, there's the what if Magic never had to retire because of HIV. But honestly, I'm going to go smaller here because... It's one of the Laker moments that I hate to relive. And every single time I see this highlight, it makes me so mad because it's not a highlight for the Lakers. It's a highlight for the freaking Phoenix Suns. And it's the what if Tim Thomas. Tim Thomas. Misses that three. Yeah. Misses that three in what what year was that, Pete? Was that 06? 06, yeah. Right? Kobe had 50 in that game. Yeah. And, and so it's shots like that. There's also the Ori shot that rimmed out against the Spurs, I think. 2003, game right? five. Yep. And, and so, like, would they have won four in a row? Like, there's, there's all kinds of stuff around those yeah. sorts of things where it's like individual games because, you know, I'm a big, like, if one thing changes – that can like shift you to a different path. And now you're on a new path in order to do this thing. And, and, and so these bigger ideas around like, Oh, what happens if Kobe plays with Chris Paul? Like those are great. Like what it is for sure. But like in the moment of make or miss league, you win one game that then puts you into the next round or on this different path. Like those are things where I wonder about that stuff. Another big, what if obviously it's like the Kobe Achilles, but, but like, is there one of any of those, Pete, that's just like sort of grabs you more than the others? Ah, man. So probably the CP3 trade is the number one on my list. There are a couple I want to bring up uh, that are older. Uh, this is before our time, but in the 62 finals in game seven, Frank Selva, who was a Laker against the Celtics, missed like a wide open 15 footer to win it. And we ended up losing game seven uh, in overtime yeah, to the yes. Celtics. Yes. In 1969, Don Nelson oh, hit bad. back rims. That's the most disgusting shot. No, the Ralph it's Sampson like, one. The Ra- so the, for the stakes, the Don Nelson one is. Of course. For the complete absurdity of it, the Ralph <laughs> Sampson reverse volleyball set shot. He's like, Ralph Sampson was this like skinny 7'4 dude. He was, he was the Twin Towers with uh, him and Olajuwon during the 80s. And yeah, he catches, was it an inbounds pass? I think it was. It was. It was directly off of an inbounds and the <sighs> game was going to go into overtime and instead he hits he hits a game winner and it's just like, and then the Lakers are eliminated and Michael Cooper yeah. is laying on the ground like he got shot. Devastated. Brutal. Yeah. Brutal. And this is back when those were best of three series in the playoffs. So imagine going through an 82 season and you got a, a best of three at the end of that. This is this um, is a more general, just brief one. But just if the Lakers, whatever the play would have been where the Jerry West 60s Lakers would have won one of those finals. I'm sure you could have picked like five <laughs> plays from game seven, right? That one year. But just how that would have changed history if they if that hadn't just been all Celtics and the Lakers would have found a way to get over the hump. 
Yes, that's why I bring up 62 with Selby and then 69 with Don Nelson. And the Don Nelson shot, he like he hits the back of the rim, goes straight up in the air, comes down, they end up winning. This is a game seven shot, right? So it's just like that's, a disgusting way to win. So there, so there you go. I'll, I'll send it to you in the in the text thread. Um, a couple others, the coin flip for Magic Johnson yeah. in the 1979 draft. Um, yeah, there's there's some great uh, what ifs in, in Lakers history. This has been a ton of fun. Um, I think we're going to do this again. we got a lot more questions to get to that are really good questions. Uh, I really enjoyed this. We are not going to be back tomorrow, so we'll be back at the start of next week. But until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. Baines has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's in. They will. Three seconds left. Van Exel to win it. It's on the way. Good! Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. Jack with his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you me? Unreal! Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two, one. Listen! Unbelievable. It's over. Shot clock now to five. Bryant. Yes! with a little tap to Albert Gentry. That insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.